Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Sunday, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, whenever this is dropping. I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. On the other end of the line, as he is basically every Sunday now, is former Ole Miss recruiting specialist Weldon Rodenberg. We will get into a variety of topics over the last week of camp. And as Ole Miss uh, finishes up fall camp this coming week and transitions into their preparation for Louisville. So uh, it's winding down. We'll get into a variety of different things, probably a couple injury notes and uh, some other stuff. And then I'll ask uh, a couple of the football-related Mailback Fridays at the end. So we, I was supposed to record Mailback Friday either Thursday night or Friday morning. And we had a uh, work happy hour thing for a, a, a girl I work with that's getting a promotion. So I go into another floor. That uh, happy hour turned very quickly into uh, everyone absolutely needs to Uber out of here type of deal. So uh, I kind of dropped the ball on that one. So we'll taste, we'll tease some of your mailbag Friday questions and I'll probably throw them into next week. Uh, that's on me. Got to be better. But uh, what's a guy going to do? I promise you didn't want me hopping on a mic on Thursday. But before we that, get to that real quick, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. They're the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has, well, made you money and helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. Look, it's pretty simple. As football season arrives, Skybox is ready to go in full steam and ready to make you money on a regular basis. Right now, if you sign up for the season-long college football picks package, that's picks every single week, you're going to get the futures package for free. And if you use the promo code FOOTBALL, that's 30% off, plus the promo code RIPPY for being a RIPPY Rights newsletter subscriber, you can get 50% off. So that's a season-long picks package with college football for college football worth 50% off. So you're going to pay half of what the actual price is, and you're going to make money. I don't really see how you could lose there. Pretty bulletproof. They're going to have NFL picks. You're going to need to roll soon, rocking along on NASCAR. They're also putting out free articles to help make you a smarter gambler, which is always clutch. The deal with Skybox is you don't want the man texting you Sunday night, Monday morning. You already got the scaries asking where, uh, where the scratch is and can we even up. You need to be texting the man asking where your weekend's haul is. And Skybox will help you do that more consistently than anyone else in the industry. So check them out. They've got a picks package to fit your price range. Just go to skyboxsportspicks.com. Whether that's week-long, month-long, or season-long sports-centric packages, you can go wherever you want. And you can try a daily pass, too, if you just want to test the waters. I'd recommend going season-long all sports. It's going to make its money back and then some. I know most of you degenerates like college football and the NFL, so why not just go with the year-long all sports package? Sports pass, I should say. Uh, it's going to make its money back and then some. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Excited to have them on board as we wade into football season. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Bunch of guys checking in this weekend, sending me pics of their haul at LB's. Some of it cooked, some of it uncooked. It's all good. It's just LB's porn over here. It's uh, great stuff. I can live vicariously through you guys because I don't live in Mississippi anymore and can't get to LB's as regularly. So I appreciate that. Go to LB's, load up, send me a photo of what it is, and use the Rippy Rights deal where if you're a subscriber to the Rippy Rights newsletter, that's rippyrights.substack.com. Type in your email, get a newsletter from yours truly three to five days a week, which is ramping back up full speed ahead next week. And you get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a pretty hell of a way to kickstart your weekend. So check them out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger, the best place in the world and for Mississippi to get meat. 
Check them out, LB's University Avenue in Oxford, across from Kroger. Back to the action. What's up, man? Uh, not too much. Doing well. Uh, like I said before we started, not an overly busy weekend for me. Um, it'll probably be the only relaxing weekend I've got coming up here soon because once football season starts, you know, you're going all over the place, uh, going to games, going to see friends, different spots. So it's been nice to kind of relax for once. Oh, absolutely. And shoot, when, you know, we're both in that sweet spot. Now you're 25, I'm 26, where I looked at the calendar the other weekend and I actually kind of had to like plan out the fall a little bit because between that and fall weddings, it's like, when am I going to be home type of thing? It's like, good God, there's one after the other. So that's always a, t- a tough one to add into the mix too. Um, obviously, my stance on fall weddings is, is probably fairly obvious and fairly clear, but, uh, you know, what can you do? No, I mean, I think everyone's on the same page with that kind of stuff, but I've actually got a calendar for the first time in my life, even during school, I never had one because I just so much going on, especially the next three months. But um, I mean, that's kind of everybody. So, you know, what it comes when football season comes. Yeah, I implemented a calendar at my office desk like a month or two ago, and I was like, damn, like, what comes next? AARP cards, pocket protectors. I have to start like lecturing kids on grease and tires and stuff. Like I, I, I was like, damn, this is really mature stuff. But yeah, so we're, we're winding down with camp sort of. It's, it's funny because the first time we, we had, did a podcast, I kind of talked to you about how like the excitement of fall camp like wears off after about a week and then you get two or three weeks in and it's, it's kind of like from a reporter's perspective, what am I covering here? Like what, what storylines are left where – and maybe it's just me. I felt this one has maybe gone by quicker. I'm sure it's about the same length, but they are finishing up two weeks of camp. I guess that would be today, Sunday. So they're full two weeks through, but they have one more week and then it's game week. But I guess that's standard, right? Fall camp was three weeks every week you were there. I have no idea why I remember it being longer in some instances. Maybe I'm just making that up. I felt like we had four scrimmages before we played a game. Okay. And my guess is they're only going to have three Yes, they'll do a mock week. game next week, too. And I could be totally wrong on that. I don't remember. Like we said earlier, camp is such a drag. Like, you kind of forget where you are in the weeks. But I could have sworn we had four. I thought it feels shorter by week. But, again, I don't know. I'll probably go back and look that up after. We'll probably both be wrong. But whatever. I don't know. It just felt like quicker. But, obviously, when you're not in it every day, it's a little different. So, what's this? That's a good place to start. What's the uh, What's the last week of camp like? Because these guys are going back to school this week. They will have classes. And even when you're still in like the technical fall camp stage, but you're you're practicing it. I imagine the practice time changes. Like it always seems different. So what's this last week of camp like? And then how do you kind of work the uh, the game prep in towards the end of the week? Because Kiffin admitted as much. There will be some of that at the end of the week. Yeah, no, I mean, they'll they'll have already started to kind of start scouting out Louisville. The GAs and the analysts will have kind of the offense, the defense, and they'll probably present whatever they have to present to the staff and to the players coming up pretty soon. Uh, when it comes to practice, I, I think Kiffin's going to stay in the mornings. I don't see him deviating. He might start earlier because, I mean, they get all these kids in the classes they need to, so it's not going to com- conflict with practice. Um, but it kind of does conflict with the, the meetings after practice and stuff. There's just everyone has a different schedule, and the, all the individual coaches kind of take care of that. They're kind of monitoring their own players and their own assistants are monitoring the classes and whatnot. So it really kind of breaks down 
when school starts from a who's dealing with what standpoint. But practice wise and what they need to do to prepare doesn't change as much as you might think. Is there any factor, whether it's the players or you when you were still doing it while you're in school or full time, full time the last year may have changed things. But I imagine this is definitely the part of camp, particularly after the second week, second scrimmage, where you're probably getting tired of hitting your teammates. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Does getting on campus, going to classes, everyone kind of being back change the feel at all? Or is this last week kind of a drag? Oh, it's still kind of a drag. Well, at least from my standpoint, when I was working there, you know, coaches might think differently, but, you know, we're in such a routine that you kind of, you get a little bored with it after a while. Um, from a, you know, a class standpoint, I think it'll change kind of the mindsets for the younger kids who haven't even been to class yet. So they'll have to kind of adjust to that kind of schedule. But for the older guys, you know, it's just same old, same old, just kind of getting ready, getting loose. They're probably more used to it. And, yeah, you're tired of hitting your own teammates, but you're also competing for jobs. And, you know, it's the only second year with this staff, so they don't have a set lineup, as we've seen with a bunch of position changes for a bunch of these guys. They Let's start with the scrimmage yesterday because we both watched the the press conferences afterward. I think it was Kiffin, Cedric, Cedric Johnson. I don't know why I ever can't say Cedric right. And yeah. Caleb mm -hmm. Warren were, I believe, available to the media after yesterday. The big takeaway was the defense seemed to hold its own a little bit better yesterday. Kiffin singled out Sam Williams as a guy who really stuck out. He was really impressed by, which I imagine, again, take everything with a grain of salt, is exactly what you're wanting to hear as both a coaching staff member, fan, whatever, two weeks out from the first game that Sam Williams is really coming into his own two weeks you know, from game day. And we haven't talked since we recorded last Sunday. And that was right after Kiffin had said he was pretty frustrated with the way the defense played in the first scrimmage, particularly from a tackling perspective. But later in the week, whether that was Monday or Tuesday, I cannot remember. He backtracked that a little bit and said that he felt the first team defense held its own pretty well. And that it was more of the second team defense where there was much of a drop off. I think Momo Sonogo actually mentioned last week on Monday or Tuesday in that same avail availability slot that the first team offense didn't score on the first team defense. I even think he mentioned they did kind of a goal line thing and they were able to hold them out. Whereas this one seemed like a more well-rounded effort from both the ones and the twos defensively. Did you take anything away from any of that at all throughout the week? Kind of how the opinion changed from the first one and how it was a more complete scrimmage in the second one, or is that all just kind of part of it? Cause you imagine some of the younger guys will be better, you know, the second time around than the first. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. The younger guys are getting used to their positions. You know, they've been in fall camp for now two weeks. They know exactly what they need to do at this point. Obviously, there will be some adjustments here and there on the defensive side, but I'm not surprised that they played better. It, usually, it always evens out if one, you know, offense beats up on defense one time, defense might get offense the next time. It's only a real concern if, you know, offense is putting up a touchdown every single drive on your three or four scrimmages. But uh, I guess with Sam, I think the differences between the weeks probably hasn't really been that much. But that whole building knows how talented he is, and they're just going to try to get everything out of him, whether that needs to be uh, positive energy, negative energy. Just everyone knows how important he is to that defensive line and defense. So I think he's just letting him know what's going on and how he's feeling that day. And 
like just getting a message of saying like, we need you and I'm going to figure out how to get it out of you. When you were out there, you obviously got to see more than I did from a practice perspective, as we've mentioned a lot of the times, whereas Matt Luke, you know, having, there's something to be said about letting media into practice, right? If you're shutting things down completely, there's probably something going on behind the scenes from like a paranoia job security pressure standpoint. I don't mean like scandalous type things, but we always got to see portions of practice under Matt Luke, but it was always truncated and shorter. I imagine Kiffin during the season is somewhat similar. Granted, I haven't been around it since they were in, you know, under Kiffin when they were in season mode, but point being, you got to see more of practice than I did when you were around. Was that sort of the the whole consistency thing with Sam Williams? Was that something that was, the same in practice where there was more left to be desired, where you kind of wanted to see more out of him on a, whatever it's rep by rep basis or more consistency in scrimmages. Like was there parallels between how he practiced and maybe some of the lack of consistency from a motor standpoint or just other things throughout a game? Was that the sem- similar at all? You could say so. Um, I mean, practice makes perfect and all that, but his inconsistencies really showed up in game days, in my opinion. He uh, he was always good on third down and his stats on third down by pressures and whatnot is really, really, really good. It's always in the run game. And, you know, he's the guy who's playing the outside linebacker at the end, like has to set the edge. And sometimes he just kind of isn't focused or not totally sure what his job is. And I think those things, when it comes to practice, he always had to get better at. The raw talent was there. It was just a lot of just scheming and not overthinking and just playing. And I think in the second year, you'll see him much more consistent. But it's also a point of emphasis for the staff, like, we have to get this guy going. I mean, he is the best athlete, maybe on the team, but definitely on the defense. And we cannot win or get to where we need to be without him getting to the level he needs to get at. Is That's an interesting point you bring up around – about him always being pretty good on third downs, but some of the run stuff, whether it's not focused or not knowing what to do. He's a guy, as we mentioned a couple of times last week, hasn't played football for as long, right? Like when I wrote that long story on him a couple of years ago, he was a basketball player that realized, you know, a six, six forward was probably not going to cut it at a high level of division one basketball, despite him being freakishly athletic. And then he tries out football for a year and then he goes the Juco route. And it was the same story incredibly raw, but man, were the skills and the athleticism uh, really just kind of insane. And so I just wonder if, is there any correlation at all to the pass rushing element maybe being more fun or more conducive to just the raw athleticism? Because there is an art to pass rushing, right? Like you got you learn moves like the good ones. It's much right. more than just, you know, run and try to get past the tackle, especially. Right. The yeah. But is that more fun? then trying to figure out what to do to plug a hole to stop the run. Like, is there any correlation that all, I just imagine if I'm Sam Williams, I haven't played football that long. Like is the lack of focus or lack of consistency. Does that have anything to do with run fits and all that being a little more mundane than him just kind of being a beast and, you know, flashing a move or two on a pass rush. Sure. I think I wouldn't say he excels at, you know, pass rushing because it's more fun. I would say it's, it's easier, you know, when it's okay. third, it's third and 10 and your only goal and your only duty on that defensive play is to get past left tackle and sack quarterback. You just don't have to think you just go out there and play um, when it comes to just the run game. And, you know, you're trying to make sure the guard isn't going to pull and knock your ass off, or you got to make sure you hold your fit. You know, it's just, it's just a more 
I guess you could call it a more mundane action. And it's, it's difficult. I mean, sometimes you're getting double teamed. Sometimes it's play action and you're just out of, you know, out of whack and don't see it. Um, it's just there's more going on. But on third and long, when you know it's coming, you know they're going to pass the ball, it's just easier. It's just less thought. That makes sense. And so that's probably the best way to encapsulate it, less thought, which comes from clearly, you know, not having as much uh, football acumen from not playing as long. Like, how, were there any other kids like him when you were recruiting, uh, you know, the last two, three years that had not played a ton of football? I was going down the roster the other day trying to find, like, someone either that I remember through the recruiting process that was not always a football first kid or started late, and I couldn't find anyone. Was he, was he really the only one? Yeah, the only one on the top of my head that was like primary basketball player growing up. And then obviously, you know, when you go to college, play football, you know, that's that. Uh, there were kids we recruited that were like that. Um, you know, I think that kid that ended up at Tennessee, Malachi Weidman, like that was kind of a basketball first kid. Um, there was a kid, Keon Coleman, who was a basketball first kid who ended up, I, we recruited pretty hard, ended up at Michigan State. You see a lot more of that these days just because, you know, these kids want to go to the NBA. But if you're a 6'5", you know, power forward, it's just not going to happen for you. But that doesn't mean you can't go play tight end or wide receiver. And it's becoming a relatively big trend amongst those kinds of athletes, just knowing where their strengths are at. But I don't think uh, anyone on this roster is a primary basketball player first that I can think of. I mean, I could be wrong. Johnson was another guy, was a guy they talked to after practice yesterday. And we've talked about him pretty, pretty frequently on the podcast we've done uh, leading into this. And you kind of outlined some of his skill set and what makes him good last year. And one of the things that I didn't, or last week, excuse me, one of the things I didn't necessarily realize that someone pointed out when they were asking a question was he saw a lot more opportunity through the second half of the season. I am actually not sure he played a game where he registered a stat before the Auburn game last year if a couple of these game log things are accurate. And I know that's like one, it's on one hand, it's kind of impressive that he was able to get on the field as a, as a freshman and make an impact towards the end of the year. And then there's also something to be said for the fact that it seemed like whether it was practice and then translated to a game, he figured it out towards the end of the year. Did you notice that at all? Was that a trend you were kind of following? I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say I was surprised by it, but I was kind of surprised by the starkness of that Auburn game forward and how he looked from a snap counted and opportunity perspective. Yeah, I guess we'll go back with Cedric to when I, when we started recruiting him, he was, he's from Mobile. I can't even remember what high school he was at, but he was playing in a defensive end and like a three point stance every play. And I think that's the biggest reason he was so under recruited was because he was playing out of what position he was going to play in college, which was outside backer. And he came to camp and was just awesome in a one-on-one -on -one workout, offered him immediately. And we were in the lead throughout that entire thing and closed it pretty easily, which doesn't happen very often for a kid as athletic as he is. Um, and then once he got to campus, like he just kept on getting bigger. His brother, I think I mentioned this in the first podcast, played uh, college quarterback at South Alabama and was like 6'5", 250. So you knew this kid was going to grow. Wasn't he on the visit? Did you mention that? Yes. He came on like every visit. And he was on the South Alabama roster, which was so odd to me. <laughs> it's kind of not, not illegal or anything. Like, what's he going to learn? But uh, it was just weird. 
but a uh, great guy though. Um, but uh, it kind of got to a point with, with Cedric where, you know, he's just flashing so much in practice. He's so much more athletic than some of the guys we had out there playing in that position. And eventually, you know, we're just in team meetings and Kiffin's like, like who is 33 and why is he not playing more? And eventually it just got to a point where you, it didn't matter how young he was. We just have to start putting him in the game. And DJ, like, it's not like he didn't know he was good or not, but he's a freshman. You know, it's the SEC. Right. It's not easy just to be like, oh, well, we see him in practice. Might as well just start him the next weekend. <laughs> but he's, uh, he's a hell of a player. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, and he – you mentioned him adding weight and getting bigger and stronger. He mentioned that in his availability press or whatever you want to call it on Saturday, yesterday – you could also see it. I mean, you looked at a photo from when he got to campus. I looked one up the other day on 247 site. And, you know, forget now, three months later, but the way he looked in December was different. And you can definitely tell now. And I know a lot of that's natural. I mean, high school weight programs to college weight programs and what these guys do and how they look after they get into a couple months of a college program, there's a base level of just a wow factor in how different their bodies look. Sure. But I imagine on top of that, there's a little bit of a commitment level on the kids end to just how into the getting bigger, faster, stronger cliche there is. Is there some, like, do some guys get bigger quicker than others, like in his case, because maybe there's more of a buy-in than someone else? Uh, I think there's two parts to it. Buy-in is definitely one. Um, some kids, you know, don't do well in the weight room. Like, it's just not their thing. It's they don't love it. Um, that usually translates to the football field. It's uh, pretty, uh, pretty corollary. Maybe that's the word for it. I don't know. But regardless. I make up words every day. You're good. Yeah, uh, there's a corollary there. Um, but there's also just a like a science gene portion to it. And that's why I keep mentioning like this kid's brother was three inches taller and like 40 pounds bigger than Cedric. You just use your mind. You're like, this kid has the ability with sheer genes to get a lot bigger. And yeah, if he buys into the weight room with coach love, like that's obviously going to help, but you see that all the time. And that's like DeMarcus Thomas is another kid where we thought he was going to get bigger because we looked at his parents and, you know, he got too big too right. quickly. <laughs> Um, so it just, it happens all the time. And, you know, you try to, it's why it's kind of a crapshoot with recruiting. You can never really tell what the kid's body is going to do when he gets into a college workout facility, but you can hope. And with Cedric, it was kind of like an educated guess that this kid's going to get a lot bigger, a lot stronger, a lot faster. Um, so pretty much. And with that's a kid that could be a potential game changer for Ole Miss from a pass rush perspective. Cause I imagine if he's as good as you think he could be on third down, whether he's an outside back or a buck or whatever the case may be, like that's something you could move him around and have a decent bit of versatility with. Like, as you mentioned, it was kind of a similar deal as him as a freshman. It's like, well, you just need him on the field. Like it, it yeah. maybe matters a little less where, like, could you, where could you put, could you play him opposite of Sam Williams? Absolutely. And on third down for pass rush downs, he's almost always on the field, either him or Tavius Robinson or one of those guys. It's going to be an outside backer-esque. You, you bring him on the field, you take off a defensive tackle and you, you go get him. Uh, I think you might be able to be like, let's see if the kid can just hold his own at a four eye and at defensive end and, you know, see where we go from there. Cause he really is just like can bend maybe the best in the whole team which just being able to bend around the edge, which is such a unique trait and an incredibly important trait for a defensive end uh, and outside linebacker. And he just 
has raw potential that some guys on the team don't have. He, he has this high ceiling by far. One of the things that came up, and this, this wasn't a question I had planned, but I, one of the things that I just thought of from I talked to Auburn beat writer Jordan Hiller in the week is like part of our opponent preview series. And with Derek Mason coming in and implementing a three, four multiple scheme, I think Auburn was more even fronted before that. I, I honestly, I don't remember what Kevin Steele ran, no, but it was a change where they went from the edge guy to the buck guy, like in terms of the defense. So what is, I'm just curious, like from my own football, like acumen, like what is the primary difference in the buck and the edge position, because in theory, it seems like you're looking for similar body types, but they have different responsibilities. Uh, like I've said many, many times on this podcast, I'm not a defensive expert, but I will try my best. Um, when it comes to being a defensive end or a buck, you know, usually you've got your, I guess, in a three, four, your two, four eyes, or which is like just right shade inside the tackle, I think. <laughs> And then uh, your guy's playing like a one or a zero, just a nose tackle basically. And your buck will move to one side or the other side depending on where the tight end is probably. The edge guy is just a defensive end, hand the ground, three-point stance. A buck is an outside guy, two-point stance, not three-point stance. Rushing the passer, setting edge, can drop back in coverage. Your best athlete on the field hypothetically, is what you'd like for him to be. Um, there, there's some different defensive responsibilities, and I'm not going to make them up. I know some you set in the edge, some, you know, you're trying to two-gap. I don't know. But it, there is a, a real difference and a real scheme difference where instead of having two defensive ends, you've got an outside backer you can be a little bit more versatile with. And so I imagine that's kind of the pass rush element, not, excuse me, pass, like pass coverage element is what I was trying to get at. Like, I imagine that's probably what makes that a little more difficult to some degree. And is that where the athleticism comes in? Like having a guy, like if a guy wasn't as athletic as Sam Williams, I imagine he'd have a harder time doing that many different things, particularly the pass coverage element of it. Yeah. I mean, I remember with Coach Mack's defense, um, there were times where, you know, Quidier Shepard and some of those guys were guarding, you know, running backs and receivers. I remember fans being like, why the hell are they out there? Like, what is going on? Like, they must be like a something wrong and Kadir you know, Shepard at Arkansas in 18 stuck out to me we because we I remember we asked him about it after he that guy was an electric factory from a quote perspective he, oh. he just said stuff all the time and he goes I all of a sudden I turned around and I effed up so that one like there was a lot of electricity with him on just a lot of different levels <laughs> but anyway finish, finish what you're saying that's one that stuck out to me where he was just cooked by a running back and he just like shrugged his shoulders when we asked him was like yeah I effed up but like he said it yeah, and it's probably not even totally his fault, but, you know, it's not an ideal scenario where you end up man-on-man -man against a guy, but it's just part of the – it's part of the scheme, part of the defense. Sometimes the offense runs the correct play and beats you. But it's just a different look, basically. Moving kind of along toward – let's go toward more toward the injury front because this is based off of uh, some practice notes, really just gathered from everyone that was there. I don't think I'm divulging any sort of, like, subscription – uh, subscription, like centric information from Chase and Neil site, because pretty much everyone reported on injuries. But Braylon Brown, Tavius Robinson, Ben Brown, Orlando Umana, Luke Altmeyer, he did not see on the field. Kiffin did admit that Luke Altmeyer was a little limited in Saturday's scrimmage, but the two I'd like to focus on are Braylon Brown and Orlando, Orlando Umana, because last week uh, in the practice notes, 
that I skipped over the note. Somebody was very upset about that. We couldn't figure out why he wasn't out there. It's because he had some sort of injury. Yeah. Um, no, no, I don't want to like step on Neil and Chase's toes in terms of like Neil put out something earlier in the week on Brown and Umana kind of maybe giving a little more color to their injury status. I don't want to get too far deep into it, but we'll just start on the offensive line that by his absence on the field, however much time, if he misses any time at all, the trickle down effect has been Bryce Ramsey taking snaps at center, which cracked me up. I know you watched the thing where uh, someone asked Caleb Warren straight up, like who's been taking reps at center. And he just goes, Bryce Ramsey, like brought it out real quickly. I don't know. I, my antenna went up <laughs> that I was like, Kiffin probably didn't love that. But hey, it is probably it not, is. but it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, you're, you're, you're not, you're not leaking government secrets here or anything no. like that. Um, let's start there because that tells me a couple things. They of course don't preferably would prefer to keep Ben Brown at guard. So, and again, they didn't say first team. They didn't say second team. They just said Bryce Ramsey. And then Caleb Warren admitted he had been taking some reps. Nice. So I imagine if at all possible, if Bryce Ramsey is capable, like they would like to stick him or Warren in there instead of move Brown back to guard, because I know and it's probably mostly Ramsey, right? Because you don't want to move Warren either. You wouldn't like to move Warren, but you're not, you know, losing sleep over having him at center. I think you want to figure out your center spot because I've said a few times you can survive with average guard play, but if you have a shit center, you're, you're kind of in trouble. And on the outsides, of course, as well. But I would imagine if Omanu is like out for a significant amount of time, I know Kiffin said that there's no extended injuries. And in my opinion, he doesn't have any reason to lie about that. Right. You know, I don't know about the reporting or whatnot, but I don't, there's just really no reason and no positive for him to say that and just be flat out lying. And you hear two weeks from now, you know, Omanu's not playing for the whole season. Um, but back to what I was offensive line stuff, I would say Warren makes more sense at guard than Ramsey. I think they've got some younger guys like Acker who can move into the right guard. Even Ramsey can play. He's, he's tried out guard a few times. I don't see Bryce being the starting guard. I would say Warren, if Imana can't play is probably the guy you're going to see there. So you were saying, you would say Bryce Ramsey translates more naturally to center. Why do you think that's the case than guard? just because he's just not as long and athletic, you know, you don't want him pulling or anything like that. It's just, he's more natural to be able to just sit there and anchor at center. And he's tough to move. He's just not the biggest kid in the world. At the end of the day, you, I mean, you said it yourself a couple of minutes ago, you can survive with average guard play. You could make a pretty solid argument that that's kind of exactly what Ole Miss did last year. Right. I mean, you kind of saw it. Yeah, you kind of saw it on short yardage situations, right? Like, yeah. it was kind of like, yeah, this isn't great, but they're surviving without it. I think it showed up in the play calling. But as you mentioned, you do want to figure this center thing out. If he is if he is forced to miss time, would they – Would you? what would you say the best-case scenario is? Would you say it's moving Warren to – or, excuse me, moving Warren to center? Would you move Ben Brown back to center? Like, would you – I guess I'm, I'm kind of stumbling over my own thoughts here. Would you move Ben it. Brown back to center on Labor Day night if Orlando Umana cannot play? I would not move him back. I would put Caleb there, assuming Caleb has been competent and solid during practice. I haven't seen that. You haven't seen it. We have no idea what it's looked like. Um, snapping a football seems like super easy. But really, it, there's kind of an art to it. There's kind of a 
you know, quickness to it, a thought process. And if Caleb can do it, I'd rather have Broker figure out who the hell is playing left guard, Warren, Brown, Jeremy James. Because, I mean, that right side is solid. Left side with Broker, you're good on the edge. And, like, you can just figure out who's going to play the left guard. But I wouldn't move Ben back to center. That makes sense. That's a good answer because I hadn't thought about it like that because you really are formidable pretty much all across the right side. And if you do move Warren over, you're like you mentioned, you're really just trying to survive with average left guard play. Like if you can figure out someone is, to be competent for that, is that I, I was having trouble because it sucks not being there every day because you like even just seeing guys on the sideline, you're like, oh, right. Like light bulb moment goes off. It's probably him. Obviously not being there every day. Is it a Reese McIntyre thing? Like I, I'm trying I was trying to go through and think of the options. Like I, I was kind of having trouble seeing who that might be. I guess uh, I, I Eli Acker. I guess it'd be Eli Acker. Acker would make the most sense. I know they've moved him between tackle and guard a little bit. Um, Cedric Melton, I think he's been at tackle mostly, but he's probably an option there. Um, maybe one of the young kids just, like, really impresses, like Pettis or the kid from Texas, whose name I cannot remember, but was supposed to go to Alabama, just never happened and ended up at Ole Miss somehow. Um, I, just I think that makes more sense. But that's what we did last year was basically, right. you know, patch together a left guard position where you had the rest of the offensive line was fine. And I think that they'll be fine with that this year. And then of course the optimal situation was that you don't have your starting center miss any time. And he is back out there for Louisville. So we shall see what that looks yeah. like. Uh, sort of sticking with the offensive line in terms of former offensive line, Jalen Cunningham has a new home. He has switched over to defensive tackle. And if I remember correctly through the recruiting process, you could actually, if you're writing a headline here, say Jalen Cunningham moves back to defensive tackle. Was he not a defensive kid coming through? I don't think I was there when he came. Okay, so that, that may have been think, right. Was he an 18 you. kid? I think I, yes, I believe he was an 18 kid. kid. I think he was actually. I was, yeah, I wasn't there when he came into, uh, into the school. I don't remember. I'll leave you – I'll leave this any way you want to take it. What I mean – Obviously, they need more defensive line depth. What what is the what goes into making that move? Just any sort of insight you could possibly provide on like what goes into it is just like, hey kid, like stop the run. Here's a couple of responsibilities. Like I imagine it's a little more natural to him if that's what he you know went back to or switched from offense to defense and then back to defense. Kinda. I mean, for him, like he, I would imagine is playing absolutely nothing but three tech or nose guard. So right. his rules and stuff probably won't be too difficult to understand. That makes sense. I mean, he's, he's a big ass kid. He's, I was about to ask that. Do you would you expect anything out of it? I mean, like, like not really. what would you need to see? No, okay. No. I was about to ask, like, what would you need to see to be like, okay, maybe they have something here, but just not the not not nothing there. I mean, if he gets his conditioning up to where much 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 better, then maybe you've got a guy who can stick in there on goal line and like really be confident in or maybe a rotational guy here and there. He, he's not going to go to the defensive line and be your starter against Louisville and just be like, wow, like we haven't seen this before. Like, where has this guy been for three years? Why hasn't he been there? Like, he hasn't been there for a reason, you know? So I wouldn't expect, you know, some world beater switching positions. You mentioned big-ass kid, and I wanted to make sure I had this right, so I went and pulled it up real quick. He was recruited as a three-star defensive tackle out of somewhere in Alabama, St. Clair County High School. But uh, as you mentioned, six six three forty five. That is a uh, one big ass dude. That's yeah. uh, that. 
So kind of going off of the offensive line and looking a little bit elsewhere, the Braylon Brown side of it, because he's missed now a pretty significant amount of time for camp. Uh, I think almost a week. I don't want to add up when he first got injured. I can't remember specifically, but for a young kid, that's valuable time, not only just learning, but kind of you know, putting something together that's showing the coaching staff that your skills can translate to make an impact immediately. Um, you know, there's varying degrees of speculation about like how serious the injury is, how much longer he may be out. Um, it's a leg injury. I think it's a hamstring. Like that, it sucks because that seems like that was a kid that was really turning heads and actually had a, a chance to seemingly make an impact on uh, the receiving core pretty early on. I guess we'll start here. What is like, what makes a hamstring injury such like a, not asking you to play doctor, but what makes it such a pain yeah. in the ass for receivers? Is it just that you're getting off every single play and there's no really other way to do anything than rest it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing. Like, obviously like you prefaced, I'm not a doctor, um, but it's just such a nagging injury that has no real healing, you know, remedy besides rest. And you never know how much to rest it and you never know how much to stretch it. And it's just really difficult to get back. I mean, Braylon Sanders has had to deal with this issue for such a long time in the NFL. I know Debo Samuel, I just saw this week. He's, um, not Ole Miss related at all, but he has had like horrible hamstring issues and he's a monster receiver. It just happens. I think J.R. Um, Plumley has a hamstring thing and, you know, I, he's never had one. So it's probably, or at least that I'm aware of. So he will probably be fine, but it's, it's just tough. It's just a really, really tough injury. And I imagine for a young kid, like this is an obvious question, but like how valuable particularly for a guy like Braylon Brown is this, you know, two weeks that he's missing or week, week and a half that he's missing to kind of get comfortable and get more and more reps because yes, receiver is absolutely a position that's more conducive to making an impact immediately. But I imagine a large part of that is contingent on the fact that you are healthy through all the, you know, summer fall stuff to just get ready to play sec football. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just so important to get, you know, in the rhythm and knowing what you need to do from a day to day practice wise. And, Honestly, from just like a mental standpoint, you know, he never came to campus before. He came from Miami and just got to Oxford. I mean, he wasn't in spring ball, I don't think. Was – shoot. I, I don't believe he was a uh, – I should know that. I do not think he was an early enrollee. So, let's just go this, assuming that he uh, is only a fall camp kid. So, now he's about to start school. He's not able to practice. And it's just – that's just tough for him from a mental standpoint. And, uh, you know, he was a great kid going through the process. And I think he's going to be tough and figure it out and get through it. Um, but, it, I mean, it sucks for him. And it sounds like he was doing pretty well, so it sucks for the team too. What did you – Scott, what did you – what did you see out of him in the recruiting process? That Because that was a really big get in the spring of 2020 at the time for that new staff. What did you, what did you guys see in the eval process that he did so well and – um, I imagine it's not necessarily shocking to you to hear that he had turned heads pretty quickly in camp and it was least in the mix to make an impact before this happened. Uh, not super surprising. He had a little bit of an underwhelming senior year, but I think you can kind of pitch that to just everyone did COVID, you know, really screwed up a lot of things. Um, but he was, I mean, he was a big kid, strong hands, had real speed, not breakaway, but just for his size speed was what you want. 
Levy had actually seen him a few times at UCF's camp for a few years. So he had a real good relationship already. And by the time we offered him and like started seriously recruiting him, like it was over. I mean, he just loved Levy, loved Dnix, loved Kevin Smith. They all knew each other. It was kind of a, one of those deals where, you know, I think fans always are like, why can't we just recruit elite receivers easily? Well, an example it was right here with Braylon Brown. He might not have been a top 10 guy, but he's a hell of a receiver. And we recruited him and it was kind of easy. <laughs> so little, and that's positive energy. Yeah. Is that just really like you just outlined it, but like when you mentioned it, the process being that easy more often than not, I imagine that's more relationship based than them just like, you know, loving the campus in the square or something like that. Yes. Much more relationship based, especially when you're moving from, Miami to you know Oxford when you know the coaches you know what scheme they run they've been recruiting you and then you meet Dnix and he's just the best at what he does so it's just not that hard you know when it comes to a kid like that it usually if the kid responds well it just works out sometimes one of the things kind of going off of because receiver is probably a great segue into getting into talking about depth one of the things I've noticed throughout I mean, you could say camp, but it's really just the last couple of months is Kiffin talking about there being a concern with overall program depth because he gets this a lot when he's asked about his injury policy and they, it's all he cracks me up. All those reporters have to be like, I understand your injury policy, but is the long-term injury list still clear? Like that's pretty much how the question is phrased. Yeah. And that gets in more into him talking about program depth than them being, you know, depleted at one position. And it got me to thinking about this question late later in the week. What does it take? So if you were hired today by staff and you guys were in there from day one and you inherited, just say Ole Miss in 2020, because I know that's a that was relatively familiar point for you at that point. Mm-hmm. What does it take to get to that adequate amount of overall program depth? You can answer this in classes or however much work, like wherever you want to go with this. How do you get to that program depth and how long do you think it should take? Let's see. It's I got to start off with something I heard probably my first year working there when it comes to recruiting and like filling out a class. The the quote was, it's not about the players you don't sign. It's about the players you sign who can't play. That is the most important philosophy I've ever learned coming out of this thing. Signing players who are not going to play for you is how you ruin program depth. Because I know I think we're going to talk about this later. If they can't play and they're a pain and they transfer, you don't get their scholarship back. So then you just lose a player. And if you lose a few of those players, then all of a sudden it's like a class of 25 turns into a class of 18 because those kids couldn't contribute. It's all about just developing, evaluating, and hitting on 20 to 25 players. You'll never, ever, ever fill out a full class where you're confident and excited about it. It just doesn't happen you'll miss on kids all the time, but building depth, three classes, maybe four, you don't really have that much time anymore, but definitely three full classes of solid, you know, confident evaluations and success on the field is how you build depth. This might be a stupid question, but when you say three full classes, is that counting the one where Kiffin comes in in late December and yeah, that's no, what I figured. I didn't think because no. particularly with the early signing period now, I figured that was impossible. So you're talking about this being his first full one and two more. Like if you look up him in three years, so 
two recruiting classes removed from now and you look at where they're at with the program, that's probably a pretty solid indicator of how they've done generally in recruiting. Yes. Now, they're actually not really recruiting very well right now. Um, I don't know their exact ranking, but the, they kind of – he does it a little differently, but I'm not going to give him too much of a, you know, a break. Like, I think they're, like, in the 60s or 50s. Like, they shouldn't be there at this point. But they always kind of want to kind of back in and really get some late momentum and, you know, don't commit kids early because what's the point, which is a good idea. Committing kids early and wasting your official visits in the summer – when no one's on campus is a dumb idea. And, and that's, it's a big Luke, thing. for him. Yeah. Luke did the op. That's an interesting point you raised because I remember when Matt Luke first took over the job, there was a lot of summer recruiting buzz because they would recruit a ton, commit a ton of kids early. And maybe he wasn't that calculated, but was some of that just a, a public relations strategy to get people excited about the program? Or was that just his philosophy? No, there's not a lot of public relations when it comes to getting a kid in a class. Like this is your job. Like you don't just take a kid, you know, very, okay. How about this? Very rarely, almost never do you take a kid as like a PR boost. You Fair know, enough. this is your job. You're trying to build a football team. Like you're just not going to do it. I think with coach Luke, he just had a huge emphasis on how we did our summer visits when it, during camps, we didn't have summer official visits. So the kids came on campus for camps and we did all, we went all out like for all of that kind of stuff. And we had a lot of success with it. We offered kids after camps that were kind of under the radar kids that we really liked in person and trusted what we saw. And I would say for the most part, we did pretty well with that, but that also led to more summer commitments and a lot of them stuck, you know, it is, there is a small benefit to getting them in the boat early. It's that you kind of build the relationship and eventually they get kind of tired of recruiting and you just by the fall, they're like, screw it, I'm staying here. Right, that makes sense. It's funny, we keep doing these podcasts, and I keep having these moments that flash like back to my radio days, because I don't know if a lot of people know this. I like When I took that job with Super Talk, my writing, my background was 100% writing-based at that point. And it wasn't like, hey, kid, here, go take some classes, train. It was like, I got back from that internship in Cincinnati, and the next week I was just in front of a microphone. So it was definitely trial by fire, but we keep doing these and there's a couple of times that I've like kind of like chuckled when like I've thrown out like the possibility of something. You're like, no, no one really does that. I remember <laughs> trying to make that like not make the case, but it was one of those summers where Luke had signed or not signed, committed a bunch of kids early on. And they had like 16 commits or something by like July. And I yeah, was like, maybe this is possible because there hasn't been a whole lot of good news. You know, he's not the, you know, he his public favor rating. Not the coaches care about that wasn't great amongst the fan base here's an idea. Is this possible? So I, I just can't imagine coaches driving down the road, listening to radio, not that they do it uh, like very often and just being like this moron. Yeah. I mean, that's not always the case. <laughs> I mean, you're not always wrong. Cause like I said, I, it very rarely happens, but I do believe in his first class when he was first officially hired, I won't think I was there yet, but I just started. There were a few kids that committed that even some of the coaches were like, okay, like, Maybe we're just kind of getting the Mississippi thing rolling. Like, I don't know if these kids are ready yet, but we've we've got to start somewhere. So it doesn't. It sometimes can happen, but not. Not I would say, very very rarely. And maybe that's a, a, a more of what I am remembering because from a fan perspective, you guys look at this way different than we do. Like when you talk about like when you when a kid commits, particularly like it wasn't my job to follow recruiting every day, and it's like a oh, three star kid, whatever. Like. 
the four or five star kids are the ones where you're like, holy hell, look what they did today. And it was a lot of those three star kids, a lot of them in state, kind of what you were getting at. Where it was like, yeah, no, this is moving the needle. It's just a bunch of stuff happening at once. It's a bunch of guys. So that's probably what I remember more of. Kind of putting this conversation like uh, we're more back on the rails here. You mentioned, I thought a very great point at the start of that answer was it's not, it's not the like who you get it's getting there. And then if they can't play is when you're really screwed. Yeah. It's not who you don't sign and miss out on. It's who you do sign who aren't good. Right. And I imagine like it would almost be an interesting content piece to look at coaches that are fired every year and then look at their like last three recruiting classes and just kind of have some sort of method to go, you know, bust panned out or whatever, because I imagine that's probably a, even a more common problem for firings, particularly in major college football, then we want to give it credit for because like Tom Herman getting fired or whatever, like, you know, there's a million different reasons you talk about Texas boosters and all of that. And he's probably not the greatest example, but I imagine a lot of the time for guys that work inside the industry, like you do, it's like, well, actually they just signed a bunch of kids that didn't pan out and then they sucked and they lost a bunch of games. Like we don't have to make this more complicated than it is. Yeah. I mean, that I think the probably the best example, and I wasn't even working in the industry, but Butch Jones at Tennessee was one that always stood out where he signed a lot of, four stars. A lot of highly rated classes of a lot of kids who just did not pan out. Now, there's two parts to that, you know, maybe you're not developing the players correctly um, and doing what you need to do weight room wise, teaching wise and I always think that's a little bit overrated because, you know, the kid's either going to be good and gets it or, you know, he's going to be a backup, maybe not a full-time guy, or he's just not going to play at all. And you kind of know that pretty early, and I've said that a few times. So the whole development thing is always kind of tough because it's not always the coach's fault. But there are, yeah, instances where, you know, there's not evaluating well. And sometimes it's pretty obvious how you know it goes about with the coaches and if they can evaluate well or not before we kind of move on to a couple other things as we kind of look around the Ole Miss roster and like I didn't ask you to study the roster up and down beforehand but you have a pretty good base familiarity with it in general is there a position and I imagine some of this is obvious but is there a position or two that sticks out where they really have a lot more work to do and versus a position that you're like, okay, they've done a pretty good job and they're almost back to where they need to be. Is any one position stuck out on either side? Oh, I mean, I guess tied in there's, but that's just a unique position. Right. So I don't think that's really fair. There's really, you know, you have tight ends in the roster, but that's, that's not a fair uh, answer to that one. I would say the defensive line is the most obvious and, you know, eye glaring issue on the team. And that's one where, you know, yeah, there's development there, but you got to sign some dudes at some point. You're just going to have to sign the best players or it, top players. And that's one where you're, as you mentioned, that's one where the, the reinforcements aren't even really on campus yet. You know what I mean? Like they don't have the reinforcement yet. It's to where I imagine your other part of your answer might have been what, like, seems to me in the secondary, they've done a lot of work. They're not there yet, but they made a ton of progress. Yeah. And they made a ton of progress, but, you know, it sounds like the kids are doing well, but there's seven of them and they're all freshmen. So like I always said, you're never going to always hit on every single one of them. So they do have depth there, but is it quality depth? I don't think anyone knows that yet, but they definitely did a much better job this year. I guess we did a better job this year because <laughs> I was there for some of that. You can still say, I was say, you can say we. I'll get a little bit, give myself a little bit of credit, but 
That's why your buyout was so large. Yeah, exactly. The the obligatory Matt Corral segment sure. this week is there's not a whole lot to say, much more to say on him, right? And I was going to ask you a couple more questions about the backup quarterback thing, but Kiffin hasn't really given much of an indication. And the guys that have been able to see practice every day or most days that they're open haven't been able to see much either other than that we did learn that Luke Altmeyer was limited, some sort of minor injury banged up, I'm guessing, and Ken K. Dent threw a couple touchdown passes. Now, does that mean a whole lot? No, but not a whole lot of traction there, at least not made public. So no. kind of shifting the focus to Corral, Kiffin had an interesting quote on Thursday, somewhere towards the end of the week, where he was asked about, you know, what's the difference between Matt Corral this time this year and this time that year? And he basically just kind of gave an answer that he's just that much better in a lot of areas. And he mentioned he was like, today, for example, the accuracy was just stupid. He was like, it was like a video game at some point. Just press the button and the dude puts it on the money. One of the things that made me think that I thought of when I heard that quote was my old radio pal, Michael Borky, loves just finding lazy takes to where it's just completely obvious you have not watched anything. And (laughs) good God, more often than not, where do you find that than draft guys in like August or July of next year's class where they just, even they won't admit it, they haven't done the work yet. Right. And the one that always used to crack us up was when the guy would put the throwaway line that he doesn't have the greatest arm in the world, but – and it's just like, did you watch him play? Like, no one's calling him the, the strongest arm in college football. But to say Matt no. Corral has you know, arm strength issues or that's any, remotely a concern just seems silly to me. But with that in mind, like, what do you think is a more valuable? Like, what do you think he does better? Do you think it's kind of the raw arm strength or talent? Or do you think the accuracy is probably more of a strength? That's a very first take question. But, you know, we're here. A little bit. Um, I would actually say that. You know, he he's just he's a really good quarterback. I'll start off with that, which I know is not a shock to anybody. But when it comes to his arm strength and accuracy, I don't think one is just significantly better than the other. Um, I read an article that Daniel Jeremiah did where it kind of scouted Corral and Jeremiah's as good as it as anybody. He Probably does the, the best. work. Yeah, he's, he's very good. I would say he's the best. Yeah, no, absolutely the best. And he kind of made a caveat. He's like, you know, Corral's got the Zach Wilson type ability to kind of shoot up boards just because of raw talent, but he doesn't have the arm talent that Zach Wilson has. And, you know, arm talent is different than arm strength. When you watch Wilson play, and I, this is my least favorite thing to say, I'm actually kind of tired of Patrick Mahomes because every time, every single time you watch an NFL game, it's always some kid – throws an off-platform throw, like, wow, like, that's what Mahomes does, you know. And – but that kind of is arm talent. You know, the ability to off-platform, on the run, make throws you need to make. Whereas Corral, like, I mean, can launch it with anybody. But it's kind of a platform launch. It's kind of in rhythm, you know, rip. And he rips it. I mean, he has as strong of an arm as anybody coming out this year. Um, but it, you don't see him on the run, like – feet not set, just like side-arming balls like you see Wilson or Mahomes and some of those guys do it. But he's accurate as hell, too. His That's not his issue. His issue is just reading some of the defenses, trying to fit the ball into places they don't need to go. But when it comes to arm talent, arm strength, and accuracy, he's got all of it. Yeah, I think that was a, a, a great answer because that the way you articulated that made a ton of sense, too, to where it's like, of course, his arm strength's not a problem, 
But you do have the elite of the elite guys to where, again, as tiresome it is talking about Patrick Mahomes, when he's like running left and then kind of sidearms it across the field back to the right, which is probably like 55 yards as the crow flies, but it's like a 30-yard, like he hits someone 30 yards down the field or something like that. It's like, yeah, holy shit. But how many dudes actually have that in general? Like that's just kind of a, like that's not something obviously that's developed, right? You're just kind of born with that. Yeah, I mean, you're just you, you don't really develop that you can practice different things and do different drills of which I have no idea what they are, but you, there is ways to kind of, you know, get that arm angle. I know people always say baseball and that's fine, but a baseball is not a football. You're not in pads and it's not the same sport <laughs> and throwing a baseball sidearm, literally anyone can do it, but throwing a football on the run sidearm 35 yards on the dime is a lot different than, you know, somebody at third base ripping one to first base and corral he is so good at setting feet and ripping it but you just don't see him all the time like out of the pocket and just like slinging the ball 75 yards on a dime you know side armed but that doesn't it doesn't really matter that much because it's just not that big of a skill set that's totally necessary it's just the cherry on top he does everything else so well um that it's just you know, he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to be Wilson or Rogers or Mahomes on every play. From You were exactly right to say that the decision-making aspect is really kind of the only, okay, can he take a step and do this last year, right? Because you had the very well-documented seven, excuse me, 11 turnovers in two games. And there's context to be had, particularly in one of those at LSU. I mean, Arkansas was just bad. They got in his kitchen. He was kind of put his brain in a pretzel a little bit. But the LSU game, it seemed like he was just more so trying to make shit happen. They were shorthanded. It was raining. Like, the defense wasn't really getting a stop. But as I've pointed out a couple times, I don't think this is some, like, new opinion, stance, whatever I've pointed out. Is like, he's an older guy because he's been around the block. Like, he's been here a while. But, you know, last year when they took the field against Florida, if I have that correctly, that was his second SEC start, technically. Right. Like he starts the Arkansas game. He gets benched after Cal. And I don't think he started another game. Like it's kind of wild to think about. Right. Unless I have I that wrong. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't. I think that he, but Cal was before Arkansas. Was it? I want to say in 19, they went Arkansas and then Cal because Plumley had to go make his debut in Tuscaloosa last week. They beat a they beat a, a shit Arkansas team the week after they lost to Memphis, and I think they had a bye and then Cal. You're right. You're right. You're 100. So, yeah. But so semantics. yeah, so start, doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Not that it matters, but it is kind of a wild way to think about it. When Corral was, you know, three games into the SEC season last year, that or is the season it was SEC only. That was his fourth SEC start, and so yes, I it's warranted that there's a question mark, but isn't there a part of this that it's just the fact that, hey, he finally went through an SEC schedule plus two once and he doesn't have to learn a new system and there's stability around him? Like, I imagine there's a natural progression there that's lagging behind his age just because of the weird trajectory his career had before that. The the second year under the system is is the most important thing. You know, I think it's been well documented that he hasn't had the same offensive coordinator for seven years or eight years or his whole football career. I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but Levy is so good at what he does. And now Corral is, you know, going through another spring, another fall where he's not learning. He's just adding on to what he already knows how to do and what to do. So it's just going to get better and better. And when he's talented as he is and you 
understands exactly what he needs to do. It's just that's when you're going to see like Kiffin come out and say like he's just been damn impressive. <laughs> like there's nothing else to say. <laughs> he's just a baller. Like I don't I can't say anything negative because he's doing exactly what we want him to do. Right. And I think it's been appropriately covered in terms of the decision-making thing. It's like, yes, this is a thing that he needs. Like if there's something he needs to put on tape, I imagine for NFL scouts, it's that aspect of it. But I think most it, it you're correct in the assumption that most people seem to be on board with the idea. Yeah, this is probably coming around, but I will be interested to see if he has like a two, three interception game early on in the season. Kind of, I don't think he will. I don't think he will either, but just care, like curious if, you know, Alabama or something doesn't go well over there and they get smoked maybe more so than most people thought they would because he turned over a couple of times how he responds to that. But I, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I, I don't think so because aside from those two games and, you know, if, ands, or buts, he was just about flawless. And again, if you, I imagine any SEC coach, if you told him, hey, man, you're going to play 10 SEC games this year with a guy that has one, a grand total of one SEC start, he'd probably take eight pretty flawless games and one, or excuse me, two bad games like that seems like a pretty good ratio I guess Indiana's not an SEC game but you get what I'm getting at they would have played yeah. 10 if not for A&M so I don't know I just find that kind of aspect of him interesting because if he does flash it and he only throws like four or five picks the whole season I mean his draft stock has got to go as high as I mean he's got to max it out I, I couldn't imagine how like I wonder what the ceiling is I'm kind of just thinking out loud like is there a world where he's the first quarterback off the board that seems far-fetched but he not could in my opinion I doubt really. would be yeah, I don't know about that. Is he one of the first four and then in the right. top ten? You know, because that's what always happens is the top three, four guys end up the top ten because someone trades up or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I could see it. I think, you know, program fit or franchise fit is going to be huge with him. Um, he, I mean, he's matured a ton in two or three years, and it's, like I said again, well-documented that he, you know, had some maturity stuff before college and even a little bit during college. And that's going to take some time for some of these scouts and GMs to get over. That's just a fact. They got these guys do their due diligence. They're going to figure out that he beat up Wayne Gretzky's kid in high school. And they're going to have questions about it. And they're going to know everything about the kid. And it, that's, that is something that can be tough to overcome, you know, by certain franchises that care about that a little bit more. But I think it's, it might not be his fault. There's not a lot of teams that need quarterbacks, which is also kind of a weird deal coming up this year. But no, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you're good. That's also true. I hadn't thought about that aspect of it. And then there's a sense that I remember always covering the college side. And I tried to read as much draft stuff and gave, like, gain a better understanding, particularly when Ole Miss had prospects in the draft, which my time on the beat wasn't a ton other than wide receiver. But, like – it's always interesting to me that yes, those NFL guys are aware of those issues, but like say if a kid has a hiccup early on in like his freshman year. And then by the time he's a senior, like, you know, in the minds of most people that followed him in college, that's kind of a distant memory, particularly if the kid goes on to do good things and matures to where I feel like those NFL guys are in charge of one evaluating the big picture, but they also might not see kind of the day to day or year to year nuance of how the kid has matured and moved past that. Cause Corral epitomizes that to a T. I mean, he dealt with so much, crap for the lack of a better phrase from recruitment to the first two years some of it self-inflicted a lot of yeah. it not and the fact that he's still here and in this position going into this year to me speaks to the fact that how he's matured as a person because I mean my god as easy it is to transfer this year and not to go all like boomer kids are quitter these days don't mistake me for that like the no, fact no. that he stuck around is still here and still doing this and is in this position is 
to me, the best example of how he's matured as a person because he could have gone somewhere else easily. He could be in Oregon. No, definitely. Um, these scouts and GMs and whatnot, you know, that was one of my jobs was, you know, waking up at 7 a.m. when the scouts got to practice or to the facility and kind of showing them around and everything. And they would meet with coaches and Siski and Lindsay and whatnot. Um, but they, their biggest thing, they want to see kids improve. And that's in every area, every facet, whether it's maturity or on the field, you know, year after year, they want to see improvement because they know there will be more improvement hypothetically. And for a guy like Matt, who's just every year has shown more and more, like the mystery is like his best asset right now that they, these guys are like, well, what happens if he keeps getting better? <laughs> right. You know, whereas some guys, you know, you see the quarterbacks, like I guess Jake Fromm would be a good example. They're like, this guy was the same as a freshman as he was as a junior. Uh, he's not getting any better. And that's why that's when you go in the fifth round is when you're trying to be a career backup. Whereas Matt, I mean, could very well be a first round quarterback. I mean, that's just the way it works. And I hope he is because that'd be awesome. Love for the Saints to grab him. <laughs> Yeah, I was about to say that would be a nice, uh, not too far from uh, Oxford. That would be a, uh, oh that would gosh. be kind of an interesting fit. Uh, yeah. But we'll see. Jameis apparently can see now, which seems pretty important for. Uh, it's an important part of the game. I've yeah, heard. that is an important part of the game. <laughs> That's why they paid you the big bucks. Let's. Uh, last thing before we take a couple of the football-related mailbag questions and get out of here. The I sent you the story. Ross Dellinger, a Sports Illustrated, I believe, broke the story where. Uh, changes to roster expansion or roster expansion is coming is probably the best way to phrase that. We just got done talking about how it can kind of kill a coach's career pretty quickly or get him fired that if you, it's not who you don't get, it's who you get and you miss on and can't play. Some of that's changing because according to Ross Dellinger, um, changes are coming in the sense that basically the way I understand this is if a kid leaves, you know, on his own, you can now potentially get reimbursed a scholarship for that. Uh, Ross Dellinger said a hypothetical cap. I'm not sure how sorts this part was, but like up to per se seven to where if like a program has 10 kids leave, you can still only sign 35 kids, I guess the next class to where is like, if you have five kids leave, you can sign 30. So there's a cap at seven, just initial thoughts. What would that change about the recruiting process in your mind? I mean, it changes so much. And from a roster building coaching standpoint is like only a positive. Um, sure. I don't know. If, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on here, but the way it's been working with this transfer portal is total bullshit. The fact that you can lose a kid, like not your fault. The kid just leaves. And then his scholarship is gone forever after a year. And you cannot replace him with anything makes absolutely no sense at all. So this, this deal where, like, if a kid leaves, and there should be a cap, you can't have 15 guys leave, and then you just get to sign 40 kids the next year. Like, that's not how that works at all. And you would never be able to fill a class of 40 high schoolers anyway. But it, it's a great rule. It makes so much sense. And, you know, there's a lot of political thoughts on how scholarships work in college and now the NIL and stuff like that. And I think all those conversations are – probably a little too think bubbly and too, you know, over people's heads. And it's kind of ridiculous. It's like a woken favorite is like, why do we even have scholarship limits? You need to have limits, but being able to do it correctly this way, where you just, you get one for one is, is perfect. It makes so much sense. Cause you're seeing teams like Texas state. They're not even signing high school kids. 
they're literally they'll sign five and then they'll get a bunch of transfers in. And like that's just not good for high school kids getting the opportunities. And it's just it's just it's the bad loophole that they needed to fix. Right. And I imagine from the tech, it's interesting because I don't know, my brain lit up Jacob Peeler there. But for those smaller schools, like it's a natural product of the way system was before. Like it was interesting. It's like seeing your face light up and being like, this was bullshit the way it was run before. Now this makes so much more sense. This sounds like a gripe that's been pretty standard across, you know, the people that work in recruiting for quite a while. I mean, I could tell easily in your answer, but I imagine the flip side of that is, is like, you guys probably don't, like if you, you mentioned Texas state, you guys probably see that. And it like, you're not necessarily blaming them because they're getting better players that are D one fallbacks. Like they're the way the system is set up for the big guys. They're just trying to do anything they can to take advantage of it. Right. Like, do you, do you blame yeah. Texas state? For doing that, like no, it's the best no, way no, to no. operate, right? No, 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 no. There's no one's the way the rules Texas are set up. State. One, Texas State, what they do affects absolutely nobody in the SEC, of course. Sure. But you know, it's just hard for them to recruit high school kids. Like, I mean, you're in Texas and you're probably the worst program. And no offense to my guy Peeler, who I love, but like it's just it made more sense for them to, to take this route and to use this loophole to be able to build your roster. And for a team like the in the SEC or you know, I guess even like a ULL or these guys that want to transfer for the one shot opportunity to go to Georgia or Bama or something like that, you know, it screws them because they're like, wow, like we've done all this work. You really see it in college basketball the most, like these mid-major guys end up being stud. They're like, yeah, you know, this was fun, like having my one opportunity, but I'm going to go play at Duke now. Right. And then those basketball teams and now the football teams have been like, well, shit, like <laughs> we did all the work and now we're getting punished for being successful. It just made no sense. And at the Ole Miss level, too, it made no sense on how it works. And Kiffin, like, he's big on kind of numbers in the roster. He, like, just hated it. It made, made no sense to him and to really anybody. So I don't want to tee – I don't want to tee up in the wrong direction here. But it's the, the cap part of it is interesting to me because you – obviously you're very clear in that this makes a lot more sense. And the cap part of it to me seems like the uh, – is your program a dumpster fire thing? Like you're not going to get bailed out if you're a total dumpster fire and got 20 kids leaving. Like that doesn't seem fair, but again, you should get reimbursed to some degree because having none makes no sense. Correct. When NIL came out, you had takesmen just cocking their guns and firing all the bullets they had in the arsenal. And I was always just kind of putting my hand up and many others are like this. I'm not like unique in this, just kind of being like, I don't know. I'd like to see how this, plays out and so at the risk of putting like shoehorning you into like a take that doesn't make any sense because we don't really know yet yeah could you see this extending coaches tenures to some degree when you do mess up on a couple kids and okay you get a couple mulligans into in theory let's just say Dellinger's example is accurate seven per year whereas I feel like with the whole Butch Jones thing it probably got to the point where his last class he had so many misses already. It didn't really matter what he did unless they just overachieved as a football team. He was not fixing that problem. This seems more fixable now. Yeah. Um, uh, well, Butch Jones wise, I guess it's kind of a little bit of a different scenario. I would say. That was just an example I used. Cause you like you used it. No, like, cause I brought him up earlier. Yeah, anyone like anyone in that, that, that vein, like coach. Yeah, I, don't, the fire. I don't think this is something that's going to, you know, improve tenures and, you know, make them longer and whatnot. We're going to see less firings because there's more flexibility. Um, at the end of the day, 
it's about wins and losses and no one really cares about the minutia of how you get it done. Right. Especially the big people with big money who like, for some reason still care about this stuff that much. Um, so no, I, I, I'm going to, that's my take. <laughs> I'll give you my first take, take. I don't think it's going to change that much from that standpoint, but hopefully another part to this is they do some sort of uh, transfer window like I've talked to you many times, I'm a huge soccer fan and they have two transfer windows. They have one in the winter and one in the summer. Okay. One's during the season, one is in the beginning and after the season. It's a different calendar, so it's a little bit different, but these kids transferring in the middle of the season and just like completely screwing up, you know, it's, it's not, they should be able to do whatever they want, but there's gotta be some sort of like, and Kiffin said this before, and I think everyone agrees, you know, that has worked in it. There's got to be some sort of window. So you just know what you have. And so the players also know what else is out there. So they can focus like, okay, look at all the guys who have left from these schools in this two-month period. Should I leave? Should I go? And, you know, so the, all the teams know what's going on and the players. But just having this free-for-all of, yeah, I'm, I think I'm just going to go to, uh, you know, play Alabama this year. Uh, see you in September after game three is, is bullshit. It's nonsense and makes no sense. That we have no leadership in this sport, so it's not surprising it's come to this. Yeah, you just nailed it. There's no better way to sum that up. Is like, you know, when you don't have some sort of core governing body and then you have the president of the governing body that no one likes that doesn't really have a handle on this sport or any of the other ones, yeah. you know, begging Congress to help institute some sort of national standard or some sort of, you know, I mean, in this case, it was actual legislation. He's asking for laws to be put in place because he's just so – you know, over his head in this, you're probably not going to get some sort of cohesive product and that's probably going to affect the rule book. So that's probably as good a place to any to cap that one. We do have a couple of mailbag questions before we get out of here. Uh, I, I will come back and answer some of the non-football related mailbag product questions after this. I will not subject Weldon uh, to questions such as we had, we had a guy checking in asking about some sort of Jackson vine, like kudzu type thing. That's apparently just overtaking the city. Uh, I know that's not anyone's area of expertise, but I will not subject you to that. Uh, we do that a f- couple of football ones, though, that I wanted to run by you because you could probably answer them better than me to some degree. First one here is John Ashton Hicks checking in. It says, if I told you Matt Corral finished with 4,200 yards passing, 35 touchdowns, and five interceptions, what's Ole Miss's record? And he's asking for an arbitrary answer, and I don't want to cop out and not give him one, but in my opinion – it's more about what the defense does. Like if Ole Miss ends up with the top 50, top 60 defense, you could start talking about nine and three, maybe really flirting with 10 and two if the breaks go your way. Whereas if Matt Corral has a season that successful, they could still be eight and four, seven and five, as dumb as it sounds if the defense sucks. So I'm not sure if that's as great of an indicator. So I'll still say eight and four for my answer. Do you have any sort of uh, strong take on this one? Um, I'll go a little bit better than you. I'll go nine and three. Okay. Because I can if he's see that. that if he's that efficient, they're gonna they're gonna beat a lot of people. Um, I don't think they're gonna beat Alabama no matter how good he is. I know last year was you know was fun <laughs> and it was exciting and you know there was a chance they could have won that game. I don't think Alabama's gonna be as good this year, but it's gonna be a full stadium in Tuscaloosa and you know just don't win there a lot except for 15. And I know that seems like recent history, but that's not an easy place to win. And then A&M, that's going to be tough um, for sure. But I think three, four, 
really that's my thought on the whole season. I think this is an eight and four, nine and three team. The better he plays, the closer you are to nine and three, maybe 10 and two. You know, the worse he plays, I think it could go way further down. You know, if he just does not have the season we assume he should have this year, this could be a five and seven football team easily. But they don't, yeah, yeah, easily. But yeah, no, I agree. Cause I mean, that he was manning the ship last year. Like, I mean, you had to have someone get the football to more in Yuboa. And if they hadn't done, really just more, Uh, we talked about the (laughs) Yuboa thing after three games, but yes. All right. Yeah, you're exactly right. The, uh, The next one I had was, this is interesting. With Ole Miss's running back depth, do you think there's a thousand yard rusher and who's the best chance? Oh, I had a second one. I'll hold off on that. I my immediate answer was like, sure, I think Ewe gets to it. But I also then kind of backtracked and was like, and again, it's different this year because you do get the three cupcakes in the non-conference and you get the 12 games. But like mm-hmm. my actual answer was probably if they move him around like you think they're going to, my answer would be no, because if he could have like I don't know, 850 rushing, four or 500 passing, like 1,300 yard purpose. That seems like pretty good. That seems like a pretty good year. And with Henry Parrish, a guy that we probably should have talked about sooner coming along the way he has, I imagine they'll try to run him as often as they can to kind of take the, uh, you know, the, the typical run game carries workload off of Ely. So I am going to say no, but that's not for a lack of offensive sec- success. What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to say no too. Um one, they don't care about the stats, so they're not going to try to get it for him. <laughs> and Ely's going to be probably moving around a lot. I don't think it's going to be to the extent that a lot of fans think. Like, you're not just going to see him at slot, then out wide, you know, then at left tackle, and then, you know, at quarterback. <laughs> like, it's just not going to happen. That There's no point of doing that. But I really think it's more because Henry Parrish is so good and Snoop is – also good and serviceable and does things those other two can't do they're just gonna have so much depth and Bullock will probably get some some carries against some of the uh some of the crap teams they have to go through um no that no one I don't think anyone's gonna do a thousand if someone does that's big time yeah I was about to say that that probably an indicator of just how you know almost historically good they were uh last one we had Guy checks in here and says, which is the biggest offensive threat other than the quarterback? I'm guessing the way he worded this question. Well, actually, no, that is not what I was thinking. What, what is the biggest offensive threat other than the QB? I'm guessing he's saying Corral's probably their greatest weapon. Who's their second greatest? I, that seems obvious. Ely. I thought he was asking about a weak point offensively. So that was a better um, question when I wrote it down. But yeah, how with it, it? What do you think a weak point could be offensively? Other than receiver? We'll go other than receiver. Uh, offensive line depth. That that's it. Exterior probably. Exterior. I mean, if you have someone like Broker or James go down, you know, you could be in a little bit of trouble for sure. For sure. I think that's all the mailbag questions we had. We do have one last order of business to get to. I did promise that I uh, I I could you could pitch me on adopting a soccer team. Yeah. This one I Very see the, the the EPLs back. This is probably what you've been waiting an hour plus for uh, on the <laughs> podcast. What so I know the EPL's back, and uh, my credentials to watching the EPL and following it are the fact that I've seen Ted Lasso. So important part. Which is with that in mind, what's uh what's what's in the mix this year? What would be a good team to root for that's not too too front runnery? And I will preface it with this: we did this segment a couple years ago when I first started a podcast, and someone pitched to me that Tottenham was the Ole Miss of the EPL. 
agree, disagree, pitch me whatever way you want to go. I would agree. That's a pretty fair statement. <laughs> Tottenham yeah. always has a lot of hope. They have some crushing, crushing losses. Um, I am a United fan. I've been that uh, fan from United since like fifth or sixth grade. I hated my Spanish teacher and he hated United. So I just <laughs> automatically went to that team and they had Ronaldo. And that was like the one player I knew, of course, two years later, he left for Madrid, but I, I've got the team for you. And I think you'll like this because I bet you're a pretty big money ball guy. You know, you're a baseball I like the movie. Guy. Brad Pitt seems like a good actor. I like the concept. Absolutely. So you're a baseball guy and there's a team. It's their first year in the premier league in 75 years. I and saw I this. I think. Yes, it's Brentford, the Bees. <laughs> the Bees are going to be your team. They were bought, I think, like seven or eight years ago by a guy named like Matt Domin or thing, or Matthew Domin or something. Professional sports gambler buys the team for like 70, either 70,000 or 700,000. I think it was 70,000. Holy shit. So buys the team. They're in like financial ruin. They're in like the fourth or third division. And I think it's 700,000. I don't think you can buy a team like that for 70. Um, implements the soccer version of Moneyball, where they buy players low, sell them high. They use expected goals, which is not this goals you score. It's the goals that you should score based off of where you are in the field, shots, all this kind of analytics, hired people from all over the place. And then in five years, they went from – in the fourth, third division, and now they're in the Premier League for the first time in 75 years. And they're good. They're not, they're not a joke. You know, there's some teams that come up and they go right back down. This team has a chance to stay. I think this could be your team. I'm going to sell you on this team. I'm in. So I didn't know the background. So when the EPL first started back up, of course, like based on who you follow on social media these days, you almost have like – a window into what other people are interested in just because you see it. And so I saw a lot of that Brentford stadium just kind of go in absolutely apeshit for the lack of a better phrase in yeah. their first game. Not that I had low expectations for this segment at all, but I was skeptical. You were actually going to convince me to buy in on someone. Then you threw in the buys it for, you know, a small sack of quarters basically. And it's, a let me, let me, uh, before I, we stop it, let me look and get the right uh, quotes on it or the right, information on it i think I exaggerating might be the way to go for all team. we know they he bought him for five bucks <laughs> no 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 because this because honestly this is an incredibly cool story yeah he bought the team for seven hundred thousand dollars and when they made the premier league that team brentford is now worth 300 million dollars oh my god yeah this i'm all in on this and yes. i imagine i'm just i don't know how brits act with the whole sporting thing but I imagine there's an element with among other owners, whatever the version of a GM in soccer is like, who are these effing guys? Like, come on. So I'm all in on disruptors. That sounds like a team that's a disruptor. Great, great find, great pick. I, I did not know the backstory of this. So I'm in. The Brentford Bees? The Brentford Bees, yes. Okay, my name starts with the B, so that, that seems like that a match made in heaven. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I love soccer, and I, I – basically made you do this segment because I was going to pick a team for you because it's it's just getting so much more popular. And what's better than on a Sunday before NFL football starts, being able to wake up early and watch soccer instead of like, I hate the NFL pregame shows stink. So it's like, why are you even watching them? Just go wait, watch another sport. It's the best. It's like college football. 
that's how much these people care about these teams. It's, it's awesome. I'm a big fan. You're all over this segment today because my next question before we got out of here was like, what? Because my whole thing with soccer was always, as much as I love poking fun at like the U.S. national team hardos that really kept saying for, you know, 19 years <laughs> and three generations of, you know, 25 years, three generations of people that the next generation was quote unquote coming. I, I love poking fun at people about that. But my thing with soccer was never, I hate soccer. It was, I didn't grow up playing it. And then with all, particularly once I started like working in media and stuff, like, the repertoire of like time slash interest in watching sports was a pretty limited menu. And so I didn't have time to work soccer into the menu. And the yeah. question I was going to ask you was what time does this stuff come on? Cause I could make Sunday mornings work. Um, I'm probably not logging into some sort of subscription site at Tuesday at work. to you know, oh, watch a match. <laughs> but like when do these, so you're saying Sunday mornings and when like a weekday and a Sunday, is that kind of how this works? I could make this. So that's, that's kind of the best part about it. So like United played this morning at eight o'clock. So that's a little bit earlier than I like to wake up on weekends, but I'm willing to do it. Um, but there's so, they play so many games. So that's just the premier league that starts and that's Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings. And they usually, they play like a Monday or Wednesday midday game. Um, but that's not just including like the FA Cup, which is like the, the year long tournament that all the English teams play. We're all like little itty bitty teams play the big teams, Champions League and Europa League. That's like during the week at like 2.30 or three o'clock. You know, you're not going to have night games, obviously, because time difference. But there's just so much of it you can watch and consume. And this summer with your, the European Cup and everything going on, it's like this is the only thing that's out there right now there's no other sports I care about like this is the most fun by far and once you go to a game and I was lucky enough to go to a pretty awesome one for my first one it, it changes your whole perspective about the sport dynamite segment to end on I'm committed to this because I can do 8 a.m on Sunday mornings that's uh you know that's honestly people love to brag about watching the British Open at 2 a.m although I'm skeptical how many people actually enjoy getting up at 2 a.m I could do a 7 a.m. Sunday thing, 8 a.m., 9 a.m., whatever, like drink some coffee, watch some soccer, and get on with your day. I'm in on this because I'm in the same boat. I, I honestly, God can't tell you the last time I watched a pregame show. I flip for NFL. Like, I, I flip red yeah. zone on at 12.01, and then you just go for the day. That's like, the, the way football's consumed on TV now, I think, has changed, and the pregame shows have not caught up. So, to hell with it. The, the bees, I'm going to buy a shirt, maybe a scarf, um, Soccer ball? Well, I'm in on this. I got to learn the player, so I'll report back next week. Yeah, do it. It's worth it. I appreciate the time. As always, dude, this was great stuff. We'll probably check back in sometime next week. If I had to guess next Sunday, we'll figure out the schedule. But uh, appreciate the time, dude. This was uh, fun, as always. And we will uh, we'll check back in again soon, as probably the next time we'll be previewing some Louisville stuff. Yep, absolutely. Take it easy, brother. All right, see you, Rippy. And that was Weldon Rodenberg. Appreciate his time, as always. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we got to a couple of those Mailbag Friday questions. I will, uh, I'll make up for it with an uh, ex- extra-long Mailbag Friday uh, this coming Friday. Sorry about that. Just uh, unforeseen circumstances, we'll call it that. But, hey, what's a guy going to do? Hope everyone has a safe and happy start to their week. Thanks for listening. Appreciate you making it this long. And uh, we will catch you on Wednesday as we continue our season preview. Uh, Texas A&M up next. Good stuff with Travis Brown. Covers Texas A&M for a newspaper out there. So looking forward to it. Uh, Everybody have a safe and happy start to their week.